You're listening to episode 65 of Goodwill Hunters. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. In this episode, I'm chatting to Eric Peck, the co-founder and CEO of Swoop Aero, a company revolutionizing access to healthcare by providing on-demand aircraft or drones to deliver urgent medical supplies to rural and regional areas. They're currently deployed in Vanuatu, as well as a couple of other countries, which you'll hear about in this episode. I'm not going to tell you too much about their story. I want to let Eric do that for himself. What I will say is that this episode is really important. I've worked in the Pacific over the last six or so years, and I've visited some really remote and rural places, particularly in Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. Some villages that I visited are only accessible on foot. They might be a three-day walk from the nearest town, or in the case of some of the Pacific Island countries, they may be a three-day boat trip from the nearest medical facility. And yet many of these countries have some of the highest rates of infectious diseases in the world. It's scary. It's frightening as a visitor, and it must be even more terrifying as a local, knowing how hard it is to access even the most basic of medicine, which is exactly why what Sweep Aero does is so important. Eric tells some heartbreaking stories in this episode, one in particular about Mungau Dane, the lead male actor in the hit film Tanner, who shortly after traveling the world promoting his film, died because he couldn't access antibiotics in his village in Vanuatu. But Eric also tells amazing, inspiring stories that make me optimistic about the future of rural healthcare. After you listen to this episode, check out the Swoop Area website. You'll see a lot of media online about what they do and also about how they're proudly backed by venture capital. I'd also love to hear from you about your thoughts on the episode and your experience accessing basic goods and services in remote and rural areas. Remember, Goodwill Hunters is a community and I love seeing our community come together and advance these important conversations. Before you go, make sure you've subscribed to Goodwill Hunters on iTunes or Spotify to stay up to date with the latest news in aid, development and impact. The other place to stay up to date is the Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre at ANU. This year's conference is on from 17 to 19 February in Canberra and tickets are on sale now. I'll be there, I'll be conducting a whole lot of interviews and I'd love to meet as many of you as possible. Visit the Dev Policy website to secure your ticket today. Okay, that's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Eric, thank you for chatting with me. Thanks for having me on today. Okay, so I think to start the Swoop Aero story, um, if you could take us back to the very beginning and um, give us an idea of what led you to start Swoop Aero and how those early days unfolded. Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually started off my career after school in the Air Force um, and I trained uh, as an Air Force pilot, uh, went to the military academy. Um, I started flying fighter jets for a little while, but I was no good at it. So they um, they kicked me off that and I went and flew an aircraft called the Hercules, uh, which um, is kind of a 70-ton tactical transport aircraft. Um, did a lot of humanitarian aid work across Southeast Asia um, in the Pacific um, and uh, did a couple of tours of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I finished off an MBA uh, and left the Air Force and somewhere in there got confused and decided I wanted to be a management consultant. Um, and so I worked for two, two consulting firms. Before I kind of stumbled upon um, this question after I'd met my co-founder, my co-founder's name is Josh Tepper um, and he has a background uh, as a robotics engineer. If you can imagine big um, robotic arms building cars on a production line, that kind of thing. And uh, we kind of got asked this question about could a drone be used to transport chemotherapy medication? 
and we kind of stood back, and that was from one of the New South Wales regional health departments. And when we stood back and we said, well, the answer is yes, that's possible from a technical perspective, but what does a system look like that means we can do that safely, reliably, and sustainably every day of the week? Um, and we founded the company to solve that problem, um, and that was in August 2017. That's such an interesting mix of skills. So, so did Josh bring the engineering skills and you brought the knowledge of flying and how to fly things? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much um, how the combination came about. In fact, the first I met Josh because I had a bit of a, a crazy uh, and ultimately uh, stupid idea to build a giant drone taxi, um, which he can conveniently talked me out of over dumplings the first time we met. Um, but then we realized that actually we had this really unique skill set where I had a lot of experience um, and a deep understanding of what a, an aviation system looks like. So not just a, a plane, but everything else that goes around um, to make, you know, make that possible really, really safely. Um, and he had a really good hardware and software development background that meant that he knew how to uh, develop the product um, of that system on a, on a much smaller scale. And so we kind of had this unique pairing um, of quite different backgrounds that enabled us to build something that, uh, you know, we really didn't see anyone else building at the time. And to build something that solves a social problem that perhaps you weren't aware of like you said that someone came to you wanting to know if they could deliver chemotherapy drugs with a drone prior to that point were you aware of the difficulties in um, providing health care to remote and rural areas um no frankly no neither of us really were um and i think we are both really driven by the impact of what we were doing in other parts of our lives previously and we both ended up in in jobs that were probably missing that bit of tangible um, boots on the ground style impact that we could have um, running this startup. And we looked back and we said, well, if we want to run a startup, we want to be doing something good. Um, and we've realized it's an opportunity to leverage uh, like this new emerging technology that is just getting to a point where we can deploy it commercially. And, and actually, it makes sense commercially and we can do some really, really good stuff around the world at the same time. Um, and that's kind of what drove us to push through the you know, the difficult bits right at the start to develop it and, and have the desire to give up our jobs and give it a shot. And so once you did start to develop it, um, I'm interested in that process and whether you used any accelerators or sort of how it came from the ideation stage to actually having a prototype which was out and, and flying. Yeah, definitely. So we, we started building uh, some like different uh, bits of technology and, and we had some interesting concepts about how we thought uh, – a medical delivery network using drones should operate. And so we patented some of that. Um, and then I had a conversation with a, a contact from one of the big healthcare companies in Australia. And we discovered that actually in Australia, um, there is a big challenge with the cost of transport once you're outside of a city. And we kind of validated that this is something that's actually needed. And so we went around and did a whole lot of research. And as part of that research, we found out that UNICEF had been uh, exploring the use of drones to deliver vaccines in Vanuatu. Um, and Vanuatu is, uh, uh, you know, an island chain. It's a thousand kilometers long in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's got 63 inhabited islands. Something like seven of them have airfields. Four of them actually have a made road. Um, and they have all these challenges that mean it can take two days for a nurse or a doctor carrying a backpack to resupply a healthcare center. And they were using drones or they're wanting to use drones to see if they could 
fix the problem. And so I chatted to the team from UNICEF and then um, I got on a plane and flew over there and met them. Um, and I had actually, I'd flown the first aircraft into Vanuatu after Cyclone Pam in 2015. So I had a bit of a, a lingering connection um, and I kind of knew what the island chain looked like um, and the challenges they faced. And ultimately they released a tender in about May um, of 2018. Um, and we, along with, uh, alongside 21 other companies, um, submitted responses and um, we won the initial uh, series of contracts um, to provide drone delivery medicine for a, an initial period of three months, and then it got extended a little bit um, across two island groups in Vanuatu. And that That's was kind amazing. of our first, yeah, it was kind of our first commercial um, application of the technology and our first, you know, use case or proof point that actually did work. And yes, we could, we could reduce the time. That it, it took to resupply a medical centre from two days down to 20 minutes. And um, yes, we can enable on-demand medical supply. So for the first time um, in their lives, the nurses in Vanuatu where we were operating had the ability to send a text message and have a resupply of medicine 20 minutes later. Um, and, and that was something you know, they're used to having to spend a couple of days coordinating someone to get on a boat and travel nine hours or walk for two days across a volcano to, to get to them. And all of a sudden they had the flexibility to, they've run out of um, the penicillin or they've run out of doxycycline, the malaria, anti-malaria tablet, and they can have it 20 minutes later and they can give it to the person who's sick on that day. This is amazing to me. I, I have so many questions, but I certainly wasn't aware of how um, okay, I think the first thing that surprises me there is that you said there were 21 other applicants for that UNICEF grant. Does that mean there were 21 other companies that were also in the drone space? Yeah, I mean, I think there are quite literally thousands of companies that operate drones commercially around the world. Um, and then there are a very small group, um, maybe under 10, that are really specialising in drone transport. Um and there were probably only two or three that are focused on that systems approach that I kind of talked about. Um, and so that was kind of our point of difference with the other companies that applied um, and, and kind of our key pillars of service, you know, safety, reliability and sustainability mean that um, we're very much focused on or we have a belief that we have to be able to uh, sustain the technology in a cost-effective way effectively, that it, it can run off-grid indefinitely at a very low cost in these countries to be able to have that impact. Um, and while we're, we're a profit, we are a for-profit company, um, ultimately if we can develop a product that meets a price point that works for these countries, we're able to deliver a service which, you know, increases their um resilience in their in their health supply chain by an order of magnitude and we can make money that's kind of the best way that we can function um and so that's what that's what we built yeah and that was why we won the initial tenders i think yeah yeah and and i think um it would be good to talk more about that acknowledgement that you are a for-profit company because i think that's a really important part of the discussion and something I love to talk about um, is, is how, how we structure social enterprises and set them up for success. But I first, uh, I'm interested in how that work with UNICEF went in Vanuatu and what level of kind of involvement did you have throughout the process? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the actual, the overall initial pilot program is really successful. Um, we, um, we proved that we were um, and that it was for UNICEF, we proved that it is possible to use this technology to um, reliably transport medication around the island chains. 
Um, we did a lot of work with the government afterwards, and they're very excited to, um, you know, enable this this kind of technology to continue being used. We did a lot of work with the Civil Aviation Authority, um, and, and and overall, the that was an initial kind of first first step and first play in the market. Um, and really exciting on the 18th of December, 2018, I believe it was the the first child ever to be vaccinated with a vaccine delivered by a drone under a commercial contract happened. And that happened with one of our aircraft, which is really cool. Um, uh, in terms of me, I was, um, I quite literally sold my house and moved to Vanuatu for the project. So I spent the better part of, um, five months over there on the ground, living in the, in the villages, um, walking from village to village every, every walk that a nurse did on the island group, I did with them. Um, prior to sending the drone in and other members of our team also did them. We probably had five or six people over there at different times. Um, we did all the, the two-day hikes between the villages. We visited the healthcare centres. We met with the communities. Um, we had community meetings where we explained to them what the technology was and showed them pictures of what it looked like and explained what it was being used for and and explained, you know, not to not to throw a rock at it um, and all that kind of stuff because it's got the medicine in there that your community needs. Um, and not to be scared of it. Um, and then generally, we actually have a lot of really good videos of the first time the drone flies in where we're always there with the community in Vanuatu. And, um, and everyone was really excited. And, you know, we'd let people come up and look at it and touch it and understand that it's real. And, and, um, and it's just something that their, their government alongside UNICEF was, um, trialing to see if we could improve their quality of life. And they were really supportive of it. I think that's a really important point that you made there about the effort you went to to socialise the idea with the community and, and really build a relationship with the community. Because I imagine that one of the challenges that we face with the, the fact that um, technologies, especially med, med tech, it can advance very quickly, but that doesn't mean that communities are necessarily ready for it or kind of uh, understand um what its purpose is and and of course there is a a process of socialization with any new project or program or anything that goes into a community but um was it difficult like was this a community that had seen drones before was it a really foreign concept to them or what challenges did you face socially um in ensuring people were ready for the the technology um i think in vanuatu as a specific example unicef had socialized the concept before so the communities when we arrived in and they saw the aircraft come in for the first time or when we arrived wearing the t-shirts they kind of knew what the t-shirts looked like um, and who we were so they're all really excited because word gets around um that you know the the drone people come in with a t-shirt with a bird on it um and it means the drone's going to come in um they were really accepting of it um and they were already aware of the concept um and there's some common themes we've rolled this out now in three separate um, emerging countries around the world. Obviously, Vanuatu was the first country. Um, two island groups there, which were distinctly different in their in their culture and their traditions. So that was it was almost um, although Vanuatu is one one um, people, uh, the way the islands work up I mean there are different cultures cultures and traditions on each island. So we effectively experienced two not two dissimilar cultures there. Um, we've also rolled it out in July of 2019 um, into the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, and then again into North Malawi starting in November last year. And then we're actually starting this week to roll it out into South Malawi as well. Um, and we're kind of seeing some, some common themes across the group in that people know what drones are, but most people, you know, our drone is kind of has a big wingspan. 
Um, and it's quite big. You know, it's a meter and a half wingspan, and it's about a me- oh, sorry, two and a half meter wingspan, um, and about a meter long, and it's kind of sleekly shaped, and it's not what people are picture to be a drone. They've often seen quadcopters or tourists flying um, like drones around to take images, but it doesn't look anything like that. Um, and so there have been concerns about what it actually is. That it's not what they're used to or they're expecting to see. Um, I've generally had a lot of uh, concerns in these countries about uh, witchcraft or, or some type of magic that's making the drone fly. And the best thing to do is just to, to actually be there on the ground. There are all just people and they're just seeing something they haven't seen before. And, and if we saw, um, if we saw a really strange looking thing on the road, we, you know, we'd be concerned about it too. So we kind of just get in there and, and show a lot of, um, respect to them as people and take them through what the technology is and, you know, we're not afraid to let them um, you know, land it into the village and people want to come and touch it to, to see it's a real thing and explain to them that, no, there's not a, a small person in there flying and it's using and using the same technology as your mobile phone to effectively the pilot is on the mobile phone somewhere else and they're calling the drone to, to make it fly and they kind of understand that. Um, but it's just about being willing to spend the time to, to help people understand. Um, and effectively all we do is we create champions for the technology wherever we're going and they can see that, they know because they're able to see the impact it has in the healthcare centers. They know it's doing genuine good. Um, and then just by being able to be willing, willing to be open with them, um, and honest with them and respect them, you know, sometimes they're not necessarily used to that from pe- outsiders. Um, and so just by treating people, you know, as you probably should treat people in, in the world as, as an equal, um, that actually you get a fantastic response and, and they have genuine questions and, and you do your best to respond to them and they really like that and they're really supportive of the project in the end as a result. Does your organisation create social change or aspire to? Are you ready to take your work to the next level? Spark Strategy is an agency for strategic thinking, transformation and sustained action. Bringing together ideas, capability and capital, Spark helps the not-for-profit, government, corporate and philanthropic sectors with strategic planning, sustainable business model design and government engagement to unleash their potential and to transform themselves and the societies in which they work and live. As a certified B Corp, Spark stands for purpose, not just profit. So if you're ready to spark ideas in your organisation, go to sparkstrategy.com.au to find out more. I think um, if, if my maths is correct, I think you named six or seven countries there that Sweep Aero is now operating in. Seven? Um, so we've kind of got seven on the books. We're currently, um, we're currently deployed to uh, Vanuatu, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Malawi 1, and then Malawi 2 starts. Okay. Um, it started this week. So. Okay. So in startup terms, that it probably is quite a quick scaling process, right? Like, especially where you're working in developing country context, you're ex- scaling globally. Um, that's pretty fast. And I'm interested in um, the the impact that investment capital has had on that and what, what having investors has enabled you to do. Yeah, definitely. So um, we are venture capital backed and kind of unashamedly. Um, we actually, in global standards, we've only raised a... Uh, We've been quite tight and quite efficient with our capital, and we, we find that's needed to make sure that we keep really aligned on what our you know the pillars of the service we want to offer are and how we develop the technology. Um, we raised some initial um, angel venture capital from family and friends and from a couple of angel investors in Melbourne um, that uh, enable us to develop the initial bits of the technology and both quit our jobs and, and really focus full time on it. 
Um, we went through the Startmate Accelerator program, which is backed by Blackbird Venture Capital um, in Melbourne in 2018. Um, uh, and for us, we went into that program knowing that we, we were going to win the Vanuatu tender um, and, and actually deliver the service there. So for us, it was about readying us for high-paced growth as founders of a company, how to onboard staff, how to raise additional capital when we needed to. Um, we went to Vanuatu. Um, I actually raised a seed round from Vanuatu um, over over the mobile phone, and I flew back to Sydney twice for some meetings. Um, and I'd kind of done a lot of the groundwork beforehand, but I, I kind of stood shirtless on a mound in the middle of a, a village where the, that's where you had to stand in the village for your mobile phone to work. And you know, everyone would take turns standing there and making the calls to their friends, and I'd, I'd wait my turn and then call the investors to do the due diligence on it. Um, and what does that mean for us as a company? Well, um, it means that we're given capital to, to take risk on a project that um, has ho- like a massive potential to grow and scale all over the world, but it's also not possible to grow that way without the capital. Um, in terms of our deployment, yeah, we've, we've deployed, we've commercialised the technology and deployed very, very rapidly. Um, the standard venture capital benchmark is 50% growth quarter on quarter for six quarters in a row. Um, and we've hit that and um, on the seventh quarter, we've exceeded it. So we've, we've hit the standard benchmarks that a, a software-based venture capital-backed company are meant to make, but we've done it uh, deploying flying robots into places where there's no mobile phone reception and delivering medical supplies to to centres, um, you know, that otherwise otherwise don't have it. So it's um, operationally, um, there's been a lot of work going to make it happen. Um, but we're, we're growing and we're going to continue growing at that rate into the future as well, um, which intrinsically means that the level of impact we're having globally is scaling with that um, because every time... You know, we make a delivery to a, to a centre. Um, it's a delivery they are getting in 20 minutes instead of two weeks. So Yeah, which is massive. Like you, uh, on, on your website, it says revolutionising healthcare and you really are revolutionising healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredible to think that um, the, the transport model that um, is operating all over the world was designed in the 1980s. Um, and it's a, a standard model where, you issue a three-month supply of a product to a centre and then a month's buffer stock, and then you resupply them somewhere between once every month and once every three months. Um, and that's kind of for the way like a, a supply chain in a city works. That's in the dark ages. Um, but what it can mean for a healthcare centre is that on the ground there's limited stock control. Um, they are products that expire on the shelves. If they do run out of stock, sometimes they can be waiting months for a resupply. Um, and this is pretty basic stuff. We're not talking about anything more than Panadol and penicillin. So the kind of things that we almost take for granted in a place like Australia, um, they can be out of stock for for a month. Um, and that has huge, um, huge follow-on health implications. Um, and, and a good example is that while we're in Vanuatu, on a different island to the ones we're operating on, the what they called the Brad Pitt of Vanuatu, um, he was their, like, their kind of most famed actor. Um, he was in a, a locally made movie that um, won – uh, a number of awards internationally. Tanner. Um, yep. he died. That's it, yeah. Um, he died from a coral cut uh, um, because he he um, had a coral cut and they had no access to penicillin. He was home over Christmas for a two-week period, and in that, in that period of time um, an infection started and he died as a result of it. Um, and that's not an uncommon problem in the emerging world. And so 
imagine the ability you, you give, um, you know, a, a center anywhere in the world where you can turn that, you know, period of a month of being out of stock to being able to turn around and say, well, actually, you never have to be out of stock. Um, if you run out, we can push it out to you 20 minutes later um, every every time you need it. That's, that's a that's a quantum leap from their perspective in terms of the the strength of the the health supply chain they're functioning under. Wow, I actually didn't know that he died, but I knew the example of Tanner, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this show because um, I've worked quite a bit in Vanuatu myself, and um, quite a lot of our guests have worked there. And we talked about how Tanner was such a brilliant film because it it put Vanuatu on the map um, globally, um, but it also was able to tell a really culturally appropriate love story, um, which which is kind of rare in terms of global film. And then I guess that's the story that wasn't told, that that the main actor in that film died because he couldn't access antibiotics. And that feels like the story that actually needed to be told. Yeah, I mean, um, I think something I wasn't aware of before getting into this is a lot of, in a lot of places around the world, that's, um, that's considered just part of life that um, you're facing a challenge like that. And that's somewhat unfathomable for someone living in, you know, a capital city in Australia. Um, but actually it's, it's not too, too much of a different problem um, in, you know, rural parts of Australia actually um, either. Um, and so that's kind of the problem that's more, widespread than most people understand because most people have, have the relative luxury of, of living in a city where um, they have full access to healthcare. Um, but, you know, actually 50% of the world um, don't have access to uh, effective primary healthcare at all. And there's 100 million people globally that are pushed below the poverty line because they have zero access to healthcare. Um, and so there's actually, that's 3 billion people who have the opportunity to bring them into line with what we experience in Sydney or Melbourne in terms of our ability to access those services. Um, and that's the kind of really exciting bit about this business model is by tackling, you know, part of tackling the supply chain, you know, where you can bring in telehealth um, or like mobile health services and all these different things. But in the end, unless you can get people the supplies they need, the other solutions aren't effective. So by tackling a part of the problem that maybe is being a little bit overlooked, um, we're able to really help leverage technology, a technological solution in its entirety to, to leapfrog that the service in you know for three billion people in the world, which is so exciting. And and so I think that's probably a good point to acknowledge that obviously the drones aren't replacing uh, local hospitals or you know local health posts or local nurses or any of that, and they're kind of one part of a larger system of healthcare and so how do you uh, what sort of local partners are you working with um and and what kind of conversations are you having with those other stakeholders like the local hospitals and the healthcare professionals etc yeah so um in kind of all of the projects that we've worked on so far um we generally partner with a um have an ngo partner that facilitates um an interface between us and the um and you know the ministries of health um, on the ground, and we kind of generally have interacted all the way from a um, you know, director general public health level, or in some cases the minister of health, all the way down to the local health staff on the ground. Um, 
And so kind of have a very broad stakeholder interaction um, to enable this to be kind of integrated um, integrated into the system. Um, and we have, we have a fair bit of interaction at the district health level um, because generally it's completely changing the way the supply chain works within the given district. And health districts tend to be about um, within about 100 kilometres of the, the main healthcare centre and that's um, kind of actually what we've based our aircraft design off is being able to fly out 100 kilometres, make a delivery, pick up pathology samples, so blood tests if need be, and fly back. Um, and so we have we have a reasonably broad stakeholder interaction um, and through, you know, the, the three deployments that we've 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 run so far and starting our fourth now, we've built quite a good working knowledge of how we actually integrate into that logistics model to to better or to enable the current workforce to better serve the people, which is which is a real kicker of what we do. It's not about replacing drivers with driverless vehicles. It's about it's just a tool that enables the current healthcare structure to better serve the people they're already trying to serve. Yeah, and that would be very different for each country, wouldn't it? Like, it, I, I'm, and I'm sure there's lessons learned, but the way that local healthcare works differs so much between countries. Yeah, I think the way it's delivered um, at the kind of coal face can be very different. But luckily, uh, like when you step back and look at how the goods are transported, it's almost, I think, the World Health Organization has built a lot of the the design around what these um, supply chains look like. So actually, the at the, the movement of products level and, and kind of what we're we're doing and we're facilitating, um, it is reasonably similar between regions. Um, the kind of coal face um, healthcare delivery and of the methods of doing that and um, the the kind of the culture that sits behind actually. Um, the people that are delivering it is, is vastly different. And so um, like on the on the surface, it all looks very, very different and there are slightly different challenges in each area, but our our solution kind of can fit in nicely at a, at a level, um, at a kind of strategic level, and then it's about how we actually integrate that within, you know, the workers on the ground and what they're used to. Yeah, of course. Now, have I'm interested in the... Uh, less smooth sailing parts of the story have there been any mishaps have you lost any drones or what have been the big lessons learned so we haven't lost uh an aircraft due to a technical failure which is really good um yeah the actual aircraft themselves operate really well um i think one one really good story that i'll share with you is we actually um we did a flight in March of 2018 where we got a call from a nurse in a village called Port Quimi, um, and uh, which was about um, 50 kilometres away from the main hospital on the island. Um, but the the way of the terrain on the island is that's kind of a two-day walk um, and then a car for kind of the last little bit or it's a nine-hour boat ride. Um, and so we got a call from Nurse Marie, who's the head nurse of Port Quimi, and she kind of said, there's an emergency, can you get... Uh, the head nurse at the hospital to call me. Um, so we ran up the hill and uh, and asked the, the nurse to call back. And she kind of came back down the hill and she said, oh, can you send a drone right now? Um, and we said, yeah, we're, we're ready to go if you are. And she said, okay, there's an, a um, a newborn baby and a mother in um, Port Quimby and, and she's suffering from post-birth complications and needs a drug called oxytocin. 
um, and there was none left at the, at the village. And so the, the choice was kind of either put her on a put the mother and a newborn baby on a boat for nine hours um, when she was quite unwell and you know, there was a fair bit of risk involved with doing that, um, noting that the number one cause of death for women in the emerging world and in Vanuatu in particular is post-birth complications. Um, the second option is we can fly the oxytocin in. So that the original call came in about 9 o'clock in the morning. I think the we took the aircraft off at about 9.05 and at 9.35, um, Nurse Marie had the medication in her hand and was working with the mother, um, the new mother, to like administer that. And so that's kind of um, an opportunity that, you know, we, we potentially saved that mother's life um, by being able to make that delivery when it otherwise wouldn't have been available. Um, the bit of the story that we don't often tell is that actually the aircraft, um, because we were quite focused on getting the delivery done, the aircraft landed on the ground um, and then all the mobile internet stopped. Um, which when we lost communication with the nurse on the ground and the nurses were trained to kind of disconnect the aircraft if it, if it looked like it wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, they have to initiate a takeoff by pressing a button and sending it home. Um, and uh, we lost all communication. And so actually that aircraft got turned off and, and um, it sat there for about a week until we went and picked it up. Um, it was completely safe and it was fine and we, we powered it back on and flew it home a week later. But, um, you know, there's a couple of, unique stories like that that's you know that's kind of more of a technical um a technical challenge that we face in Vanuatu um a really interesting story um and a cultural story from when we deployed into DR Congo was that um there was a uh, a story that existed in the village um so we were delivering uh medical supplies into a village called Wijipake um which kind of nine months before had had an Ebola outbreak so they're quite used to medical staff and um, you know, being, being on the ground there with them um, and that had a few medical scares. Um, and they actually, and I, I don't know if, if anyone's listening to the podcast has been able to Google us, I said the aircraft are, are white. Um, uh, so that, that that's kind of our colour, our colour, our colouring of the aircraft is that they're white with the, the bird on the tail. Um, and so we flew the aircraft into the village um, and uh, it landed on the ground, but there was this there was existing myth in the village that there was a, a, uh, a witch, a white witch that would fly into the village and steal the children. Um, and if, if you touched the witch, the witch disappeared. And so when the drone came in, uh, the, all the village became worried that this was actually not the medical drone, but it was the white witch. Um, and so to kind of help the village overcome their fear of that, we left the aircraft sitting on the ground powered on, um, before sending it back home and we let all the, all the mothers with newborn babies in the village one by one lined up and, and touched it um, to make sure that it wouldn't disappear. And then and, and it's, it's kind of a good story. And then the first person, uh, the first mother who touched it was a bit nervous and they kind of realised, okay, this is a real thing. And I'm, I'm explaining in half broken French to our translator who's translating the local language, which is called Lingala, and explaining the different features of of the aircraft and how it actually works and it's not witchcraft and, you know, it just uses the mobile phone signal and, and, um, and, you know, we kind of, you know, had to spend 20 or 30 minutes on the ground and then the aircraft left again and then we sent another one in and the, the next group of mothers came by and, and kind of at the end of the day, they were all really excited because they trusted that, you know, it wasn't anything bad, but they were just really excited to be able to see it. So, um, you know, they're kind of two examples of very different challenges, different aspects that we've, we wouldn't have expected. Um, but, you know, you kind of you face them and work with it along the way. Yeah, I love those stories. Thank you for sharing them. And 
<laughs> I think the the interesting moral to the story is um, you're saving lives. You're getting emergency medical supplies to people and uh, working in some really interesting cultural environments while you do it. And that just I think that just makes the story more interesting. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I am. Um, I'm really, really excited to be doing what we're doing and looking to con- continue expanding it so we can keep on having, you know, the scaling that level of impact we're able to have around the world. Absolutely. And that's a good question for me to finish on. So what would be, I'm not sure the kind of time horizons that you're operating with as a company, but what would be the 10-year outlook, say, for Sweep Aero? The company's vision is to transform the way the world moves essential supplies. And so that's really, that's our, that's our 10-year, that's what we want to do. We want to transform the way time-sensitive essential supplies are moved everywhere in the world. And kind of at the moment, our, our focus markets kind of spread from Central Africa all the way back to the Pacific and everywhere in between. And what I'd love to see is a kind of that's roughly a billion people in that in that area spread. Um, maybe a few more in actually there's probably more than that, but we'll call it a billion people. Um, and I'd like to see that in ten years' time, um, everywhere from the, the outskirts of Melbourne through the Pacific Islands into the middle of the Congo jungle, that we're able to actively turn the dial on everybody within that area's ability to access healthcare. Um, and then the ultimate measure will be, can we bring that 50% number within where we're operating? Can we bring 50% of people who don't have access down to zero? That'd be an awesome outcome for 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited as well. And, and I think you made an important point there that we've not discussed quite so much, but it is important to note that the Australia needs this too. And that a lot of the healthcare challenges that you're solving in developing countries, we also have those healthcare challenges in remote and rural communities in Australia. And I know that is a problem that Sweep Arrow is also trying to solve. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, our, our focus is kind of from everywhere in that geographic band. And I think one of the, um, one of the things that's often missed is often if you live in any, in fact, often if you live anywhere outside of, 100 kilometres from a major centre, so think of Melbourne or Sydney or a, a regional area, it's not uncommon to wait a week to get um, medication delivered to you. Um, and that's because actually in Australia the transport cost is so high you have to wait for a, a scale delivery, so a truck that's carrying a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and ultimately what that means is that even in Australia in a relatively urbanised area where people um, have mobile phones and and um, all the all the mod cons of city life, um, they're not able to get penicillin within a week, which is you know a rough metric for effective provision of primary healthcare. And so, the actual solution itself is just as effective um, anywhere in between Melbourne and Sydney um, as it is in say Indonesia or the Philippines or Vanuatu or Mozambique or Malawi or the Congo. And they're kind of all places that we'll be operating in the next year. Um, Australia included. So um, the level of impact across all those areas is massive and it's, you know, having different effects for different areas, but ultimately the, the net result is that it's an improved ability to access healthcare. I'm, I'm really inspired by the work that you're doing and um, you and Josh and the whole team, it's, it's really quite amazing. So thank you so much for chatting with me. No, thanks very much for having me on and um, yeah, it's been fantastic.
That's it for episode 65. Make sure you've subscribed on iTunes and Spotify and please jump online and let us know what you thought of today's episode. I'd love to chat with you. See you next week. 